listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 226. In this episode, we are talking to Jesse Hagopian about critical race theory. What is it? Why is everyone so obsessed with it? And how is it being used by the right to attack public education and teachers? But first, the news. New York City's fast food workers hit a milestone this month with the enactment of a new law that protects fast food workers from being fired without good reason. The Just Cause protections, which passed the city council last December, prevent bosses from arbitrarily firing fast food workers without a fair reason. Employers must provide a written explanation of the reason for termination. If an employee contests the termination, the employer must provide proof of that reason. The law also mandates that employers undertake progressive steps of discipline before terminating an employee. Probationary periods, in which workers are put on notice for disciplinary measures, will be limited to 30 days. Crucially, the law entitles workers who are fired without just cause to reinstatement and to back pay. About 67,000 fast food workers at chains that have at least 30 stores nationwide will be affected. While many union contracts already have just cause protections, the fast food industry is largely non-union, and it is quite rare for just cause to be codified in state or local law. As a state-level regulation focused on fast food chain restaurants, New York City's Just Cause Ordinance is unique. Philadelphia passed a Just Cause Ordinance protecting about 1,000 parking attendants a couple years ago, according to labor notes. And Montana also has statewide Just Cause protections. And there are plans to push similar legislation in Illinois and Seattle. But across the country, the default is at-will employment, in which employers are allowed to fire workers without stating any reason, as long as it's not in retaliation for speaking out about discrimination, harassment, abuse, or safety violations. And of course, if you're fired for any of the latter reasons, actually getting legal recourse for that is extremely rare. The momentum to enshrine just cause protections for low-wage workers may be growing in light of the economic turmoil of the past year and a half, as many frontline workers have struggled to hold on to their jobs amid the pandemic, or they've complained that they've been fired in retaliation for trying to organize their workplaces. Just cause protections, coupled with a $15 minimum wage, are the product of years of campaigning by the Fight for 15 in New York. Much of the work to push through the Just Cause Ordinance was undertaken by SEIU, one of the main backers of the Fight for 15. Still, fast food workers in New York City are not formally unionized, and as Rand Wilson pointed out in Labor Notes, quote, a union contract provides for so many things that the law does not. For example, it eliminates out-of-pocket outlays to lawyers and offers a grievance procedure and advocacy backed up by a union steward with collective support from members, unquote. But being protected by the law from arbitrary firing could strengthen workers' ability to organize, as it would give them more legal leverage to fight back against retaliatory firing. I spoke with Yoral Martinez, a former Chipotle worker who has been active with an organizing campaign led by SEIU 32BJ, which represents many service workers across the city. Yo me encontré conectado con la unión. I got connected with the union through a person named Eduardo. He came by Chipotle and asked if I was interested in a union. I said yes, definitely, because I used to work a union job and it was a great job. The company management realized I was speaking with a union person. I had already gotten some harassment because I had started talking about organizing when I was first hired. But I got more involved, talking to Eduardo more about the union, until the moment when they fired me. 
That's why I'm so involved with the union now. It reached the point where I went to City Hall and testified to a council member about why Chipotle workers need the union. I went to City Hall because when they fired me, it wasn't just. One day, when I came into work, the manager told me, you don't have a job, you're fired. I asked why, and the manager said, no, I don't need to give any reason. They have the power to fire people without any reason, just because. It's bad. I decided to fight for this. I have my rights, and what they want is for me to keep quiet, for things to stay the way they are. This new law definitely will help us. But the most important thing is to let people know about it, because many workers don't know that the law was passed. A lot of people don't know, and the manager never told the employees. This is the first law, I think, like this in the country, maybe. So is there anything yeah. you want people to know about, you know, should their cities also have a law like this? I think the most important thing is that whatever problem or situation you have, you have to talk about it. It doesn't matter if you don't know English, if you only speak Spanish, you have to speak out. I always find that there's someone who can help you and guide you and tell you what the laws are and what you're really allowed to do and what they can't do. But most important is to not feel afraid and to not stay quiet. And that was former Chipotle worker Yerel Martinez. Striking steelworkers across five states have ratified an agreement with Allegheny Technologies Incorporated, ATI, and will end a strike that has been ongoing since March 30th. The strike came a year into bargaining and five years after a seven-month lockout where management demanded heavy concessions. The United Steelworkers declared it an unfair labor practices strike, filing charges with the NLRB that the company had refused to furnish essential bargaining information. As with so many labor conflicts these days, health care was one of the major issues. The company wanted what workers called a two-tier health care system, which would give different coverage to new hires. According to the USW, the new contract preserves premium-free coverage and does not include a second tier. Peter Knowlton at Labor Notes wrote, quote, Most of the shops are in areas still reeling from the deindustrialization of the 80s and 90s. Five are in western Pennsylvania, Canton Township, Brackenridge, Latrobe, Natrona Heights, and Vandergrift. The others are in Louisville, Ohio, Lockport, New York, East Hartford, Connecticut, and New Bedford, Massachusetts, where 60 members are out on strike. And plant closures were an ongoing issue for the workers. Workers told stories of being shuffled around as the company closed facilities, sometimes moving two or three times in order to keep their jobs. The company is pushing to close even more facilities, and the statement the union put out does not expand on that beyond noting that it safeguarded shutdown pensions. But given that the threat of plant closures is usually used to deter militancy and particularly strikes, it's good to see the workers standing firm throughout this and fighting against two-tier structures designed to undermine solidarity. 
C.M. Lewis wrote it in these times when the strike began, quote, for rank and file workers like Joe Clark, an overhead crane operator at the Brackenridge facility, a work stoppage is his chance to draw a line in the sand after years of compromise. When we were first contracted to put this mill in at Breckenridge, they asked us for concessions because they wanted to create jobs that were going to be for us and for our families in the future, says Clark. It was supposed to guarantee more jobs for the community, so we sacrificed. The company spent $1.5 billion to expand and update the Breckenridge facility, aided by a controversial economic development strategy known as Keystone Opportunity Zones. These long-term tax abatements awarded to these zones were supposed to create jobs, but a 2015 piece written by then-president of the United Steelworkers, Leo Girard, argues they have never materially benefited local residents. Bill Rivnak, who Girard quotes in the piece, says that everyone thought when they built a $1 billion plant here that it would be great for the community, and it hasn't been. End quote. In addition to preserving premium-free health care, the USW says the workers will receive 9% wage increases and lump sum payments and will begin returning to work shortly. We will put more information at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And if you're a steelworker at ATI, you can reach us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. One of the big signs of the economy's reopening is the revival of brick and mortar retail. But workers are returning to work in a retail landscape that is in many ways becoming more unequal. The gulf between those with and without union representation has grown more stark, according to a new analysis by Reuters. Federal labor data from the last three years reveals that, quote, the weekly pay differential between union and non-union workers in the U.S. retail sector widened significantly between 2013 and 2019, from nearly $20 to more than $50. By the end of 2019, a unionized retail worker was taking home an average of about $730 per week, compared with over $670 weekly for a non-union worker. The analysis found that unionized retail workers tend to work more hours with more predictable schedules than their non-union counterparts, which reflects how unions buffer workers against one of the most pervasive forms of precarity in the sector, erratic hours and unpredictable schedules. The Reuters report also looked at recent data on unionization and found that unions won a substantial majority of National Labor Relations Board representation elections. Last year, unions won a whopping 90% of petitions to form bargaining units, which Reuters found was, quote, the highest rate of success in at least a decade. Nevertheless, unionization in retail specifically has been in a steady decline since the 80s. Large retail employers such as Amazon and Walmart have deployed all sorts of propaganda and coercive tactics to keep organizers from getting a toehold in their workforces. The brutal consequences of this weakening of workers' bargaining power were manifested during the pandemic when the retail sector shuttered stores nationwide and shed millions of jobs. Many of the retail workers who stayed on the job arguably fared even worse. Amazon workers worked at a frenzied pace to make their productivity requirements each day, subjecting themselves to high risk of injury as well as infection. Many grocery workers, even unionized ones, braved tremendous stress on the front lines of the pandemic. A UFCW survey published in April 2020 found that nearly 30% of grocery and food workers reported that, quote, customers had treated them somewhat poorly or very poorly, unquote. But now there's a boomerang effect as stores reopen and big retailers go on hiring sprees, even start to offer higher wages to attract workers. But to make those gains last, workers will have to organize like hell. Which brings me to another piece of labor news this week, the freshly minted Senate Budget Reconciliation Bill, which was assembled by Bernie Sanders, contains provisions for the PRO Act, the extensive set of labor reforms that we've covered on this show before. 
Though details on the bill are scarce, the most recently publicized version of the PRO Act would outlaw right-to-work laws across the country, which are known for undermining union finances, and ban so-called captive audience meetings run by union busters. It would also streamline the National Labor Relations Board process by subjecting employers to substantial penalties if they violate labor law. It remains to be seen whether the PRO Act will stay in the reconciliation bill, because it might be pared down further as negotiations among Democrats continue. But if the PRO Act is included and passes through the reconciliation process, it could be a major breakthrough for retail workers. They have faced some of the most vicious resistance from employers when trying to organize at workplaces like Walmart, Amazon, and Home Depot. Whether or not the PRO Act passes in this session of Congress, the pandemic has underscored the urgency of getting these workers organized, not just to improve their working conditions, but to protect their lives. We've been hearing so much about this whole nobody wants to work labor shortage drama in the service industries. And the obsession, of course, seems to have started because some photos of some signs on fast food drive throughs and restaurant doors complaining of insufficient workers because nobody wants to work anymore went viral. So naturally this week, when another sign went viral and it actually drew attention to the horrific conditions working inside of those fast food restaurants, I knew I had to talk about it today. Burger King workers at a store in Lincoln, Nebraska, got tired of working in a 90-degree kitchen with no air conditioning and understaffing, so they quit. And they put their notice up on the marquee outside of the store, changing the letters that are meant to inform passersby of promotions to read, We all quit. Sorry for the inconvenience. Rachel Flores, the general manager of the store, told reporters that she'd been hospitalized for dehydration working in the unair-conditioned store and that her boss told her she was being a baby. District managers, she said, were no help at all and continued to understaff. When she put in her two-week notice, eight of her workers did the same. Flores had only been general manager since January and said that turnover everywhere was the same. The story winds up with, quote, they believe other locations may have similar experiences, end quote. Of course, I love this story because it's workers taking back the narrative, posting the marquee to let everybody know that the store is badly run and they all quit. Because of their sign, reporters asked questions about the heat and the understaffing and the overwork. Most of the time, of course, these kinds of stories have been told from the point of view of the owners complaining about workers. Flores happens to be the manager, but in the case of workplaces like this, the manager isn't really given much power to make many decisions, like, you know, getting the air conditioning fixed. And when push comes to shove, she realized that her interests had more in common with the hourly workers who quit alongside her. Wonder if they fixed the air conditioning yet. The latest bugbear for the right in America is a panic about critical race theory in schools and the attempt to ban it and to ban teaching about the structural or institutional racism in this country at all. This is, unsurprisingly, part of the backlash to last year's protests after the killing of George Floyd, which were, we should remind everybody, the largest protests in American history. And yet, of course, there we get another attempt by conservatives to blame American teachers for everything wrong with the world. This panic contains shades of anti-communism, of the panic over evolution and intelligent design, the history of school segregation. There's a little bit of everything here for the discerning culture warrior. And like most attempts to stoke a culture war, it's an attempt to keep a movement from growing and changing structures of power, a movement that was and is led by working class black people. 
to talk about all of this today and why it's an issue that teachers unions and unions in general should care about, we have Jesse Hagopian, a Seattle High School ethnic studies teacher, editor and co-editor of books about schools, including Black Lives Matter at School and Teaching for Black Lives, and of course, a longtime union member and activist. So Jesse, hello, and welcome to Belabored. So before we dive into the fun and joy that is the right-wing attack on schools, I wanted to just ask you to sort of tell us a little bit about teaching in the pandemic. How are you? How are the people you know? How are the kids? How are you feeling about everything? Wow, it's been an incredibly difficult last year and a half of, of teaching. When the pandemic hit, last school year was really scary. You know, I didn't know if I'd be losing kids and families to the virus. And, you know, our homeless students suddenly lost all of their supports and services that they uh, relied on in the schools. And then we all had to figure out how to teach remotely. And online learning leaves a lot to be desired. So much of the magic of education is about coming together and collaborating to solve problems. And that was just really hard to do with blank squares on a Zoom screen. So it's been a serious challenge, but I think some of the things that got me through this time was connecting with educators and students who are part of this incredible uprising for black lives that erupted last spring and summer and and then bringing those themes into the classroom and seeing how much you know students were really driving the conversation and wanting to to find out the history of police violence and uh, and get so much more context to understand what's happening in our society yeah, absolutely. It's just been um, so much in so many ways. And so, of course, because teachers haven't been through enough in the last year and a half, um, now we've got the fun times of critical race theory panic. So um, to start off on this subject, tell us a little bit about like what the heck is going on here? <laughs> That's a good question. What the heck is going on? Well, I think to understand this panic around critical race theory, you really have to go back and understand like the red scares in this country, McCarthyism, you know, when oh yes, <laughs> hundreds of teachers were fired in this country. I believe uh, some 600 teachers were fired for being accused of being communists in the early 50s in this country. And it really didn't matter whether you were a member of the Communist Party or not. It was anybody who was challenging racism or doing multiracial organizing or questioning the government or policies in any way, right, were painted with this brush. Uh, and it was a really scary time, right? And I think one that resembles what we're seeing here today where they label any kind of anti-racist teaching as critical race theory, and then they, they demonize critical race theory. Um, there was a column in the Wall Street Journal 
uh, yesterday calling it Marxist and trying to whip up fear that it is training kids to be anti-white, to hate themselves, um, and to hate America. What was interesting in that Wall Street Journal column, however, is that they never once identified anything that was actually being taught in the classroom. They just said critical race theory is being taught, but they never described a lesson that they found found objectionable. And really what's happening is this attack is putting a chill on on uh, helping students learn about what's happened in this country and how we've arrived at a situation in this country where white families have 10 times the wealth of black families. They don't want students to have the context to the historical analysis to be able to understand why a black woman is 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or child-related causes than, than, a, a, than a white woman. They don't want students to understand why black kids are suspended at three or four times the rate of white kids, right? Or why Asian hate crimes have surged close to 170% in this year. They don't want kids to, to understand how what's happening in the world and how to change it, right? And so they are passing laws to literally mandate that teachers lie to kids. That's, that's where we've gotten to in this society now. So in states like Iowa or Idaho or Texas or Tennessee, where these bills have passed, Teachers are now required to lie to kids about the past because the bills say that you can't teach that the U.S. is fundamentally racist, right? But how else can you describe the fact that our country was founded on genocide of Native Americans, of Africans, right? And if you were to really follow the letter of this law, I don't even think you could actually teach the U.S. Constitution, Right. Because <laughs> the Constitution said that black people were three fifths of a human being. That's that's fundamentally racist. So we can't even teach our founding documents anymore uh, in according to these laws. It, it's it's absurd. And it's it's scary because educators have already lost their jobs. It, it's looking like the McCarthy era. I mean, there's a teacher in Tennessee who was fired for teaching a Ta-Nehisi Coates essay, right? So this is what we're up against, and the, the attack is just getting more vicious yeah. Uh, yeah. by the day. So, yeah, so something like 16 states and the federal government have introduced or even passed legislation banning or limiting teaching what they're calling critical race theory. Um, but to start out, can you tell people who maybe – don't know like what critical race theory actually is versus what they're saying it is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, critical race theory uh, emerged in the late seventies and early eighties in the uh, legal field. Right. And it emerged as uh, graduate level law classes that was seeking to understand how racism was embedded in America's legal system, 
And there are several components to critical race theory, right? Understanding that race is a social construction and doesn't have anything to do with biology. That race, while it's not a bio- biological reality, that it <clears throat> white supremacy exists in our society and is part of the way it maintains power through the legal system, right? And, and also um, concepts like intersectionality, uh, really came out of critical race theory. And, and that is a term coined by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who was defending black women in, in auto plants in the Midwest. And these women were putting forward uh, lawsuits saying that there was discrimination against them because they couldn't get hired. And the court said, well, are there black people who are being hired? And they had to concede that, yes, there were black workers who were hired. And they said, well, are women hired? And they conceded, yes, there are women hired. So the court said, well, in that case, there is no discrimination. Well, the obvious problem there is that, yes, there were black people and yes, there were women being hired, but the black women were not. And so we needed this term intersectionality to understand how people can have multiple identities that are impacted by systems of power and oppression, right? And so intersectionality is a really important concept um, that came out of critical race theory, even though it had many antecedents uh, mm-hmm. before it. And, and you know, some of these concepts are being taught in K-12 education, even though the vast majority of educators have never taken a critical race theory class. There's certainly no professional development offered around mm-hmm. critical race theory, which I, <clears throat> I think is a shame. So all the howling of the right wing that, that, uh, teachers are teaching critical race theory, you know, 90% of teachers wouldn't be able to tell you what critical race theory is. Um, But I think there are important insights that critical race theory has provided um, that that are being taught in pockets where there's social justice educators and, and should be taught more. And now that the right has raised it, I think many more teachers are actually beginning to study it and figure out uh, some of the benefits of it and hopefully <laughs> teaching more of it. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, yeah, so you already mentioned in the beginning the connection of this to the McCarthy era and the horrific treatment of teachers in, in public schools then. Um, I'm also thinking about, um, you know, people have compared this to the fight over evolution and teaching intelligent design and of course, I'm thinking about the connections to school desegregation, the ongoing project of desegregating public schools yeah. because they're still segregated and the fights over busing. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are important parallels to draw. And I, I totally see that connection to the fights over integration. Um, when you have white families feeling like they're the ones under attack because... Uh, the schools want to become more equitable, right? So there's that phrase when when you've been privileged all your life, equity feels like oppression. Mm. <laughs> um, and so you know that happened with with 
the battles over integration and, and is happening now with the battles to teach the truth um, about structural racism in our schools. <clears throat> but this has been a struggle for the entire history of this country. You know, black people and my ancestors <clears throat> were forbidden to be literate, right? So yeah, uh, we have to understand that there were mandatory anti-literacy laws for black people in this country after the Stono Rebellion in uh, the 1700s they had the first laws mandating that black people could not read and write. And that would be punishable with whippings, beatings, maimings, even death, if you were caught reading and writing. And our brave ancestors snuck off plantations and taught each other to read and write, regardless of the consequences. And then during Reconstruction, it was black people who knew that there was no real emancipation without education, and they built the public school system in the South, and black people actually built an integrated public school system in the 1860s. So you actually had white and black kids sitting next to each other in classrooms in the 1860s, and then when Reconstruction was attacked by the government, and by the Confederate former Confederates <clears throat> and the reign of terror from the Ku Klux Klan came to be, those schools were shut down, right? And and Jim Crow was implemented. But, you know, black people fought back again and the civil rights movement built freedom schools and the Black Panther Party had liberation schools and there were Afrocentric schools that flourished across the country in the 1970s. And today we have the Black Lives Matter at School movement. And I think that we stand in a long tradition of fighting for the right to education, for a truthful and honest education. And today's racists, they're not so bold as to ban the reading of the, wor of the word like they did to my ancestors, but they do want to ban mm -hmm. the reading of the world, as Paulo Freire put it. Right. The, mm -hmm. To help kids understand their society. Yeah. 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 And right. You mentioned you're one of many educators who's been working on creating curricula and speaking and writing about the need for anti-racist education, making black lives really matter at school, tackling all of these ongoing inequalities. Um I, when I was researching for this, I noted that one of the sort of mouthiest voices behind this panic, Christopher Rufo, called an anti-racism training held for city employees in, in Seattle, um, cult programming. So, you know, it, it is, while it is sort of ludicrous, it is also responding to a real push by, you know, social justice educators mm -hmm. to actually yes. tackle some of this stuff. Yes, I, that's such a good point. And I think it's one that doesn't get made nearly enough. The reason why the right wing in this country is freaking out about the teaching of anti-racism is because we are making real inroads, primarily as a result of the uprising for black lives that occurred in the spring and summer of 2020 in the wake of the killing of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and so many others. Right. There were, you know, got described as the broadest protest in U.S. history. And more and more 
educators wanted to make school relevant to their students by bringing conversations about structural racism into the classroom that students were already having in the hallways or on the playground or on the school bus or wherever they were. And teachers wanted to figure out how to actually help students have those conversations. And so that's why I think Black Lives Matter at Schools Week of Action tripled in size this past school year uh, with many more communities across the country participating in our, our Week of Action during the first week of February. And it's really exciting to see so many educators helping students understand the long history of structural racism in this country, but it clearly freaked out the right wing that we could build more solidarity between students of all races and help them understand how to unite together to challenge racism and inequality in in our society. And that's why they're pushing these laws. And it isn't just the teachers who have lost their jobs Mm -hmm. or been overtly attacked that's the problem. There's a broader problem going on here, which is that many teachers are being intimidated from teaching anything about race now and are self-censoring themselves because of the fear they have. So, you know, I talked to some educator friends in Iowa where the bill has passed banning the teaching that the U.S. is structurally racist. And they said that some of their white colleagues who had been inspired by the uprising began introducing a more diverse uh, curriculum, Mm -hmm. like adding Alice Walker to their language arts curriculum. And now they dropped that book because they were afraid of the themes that were in the book uh, creating conversations about structural racism that would lead to them being fired. And, and, you know, another teacher, a kindergarten teacher in Iowa was afraid to talk about Ruby Bridges, right? The elementary school student that integrated her New Orleans school for the first time. Mm. Right. And some of these basic stories about what made our society are now going to be lost because of these attacks. Yeah. Alice Walker, multiple award winning Alice Walker. Um, Yeah. It's, it's obvious that this is the sort of convenient place they see to have a backlash. Um, And of course, this, this coincides with the ongoing need in America to blame teachers for everything that goes wrong and um, try to get them fired. But so particularly, obviously, like the places where these attacks are most likely to go through are also going to be the places where legal protections and union strength are not so strong, right? Like it's going to be in conservative right to work states. It's going to be, um, yeah, because in places where unions have power, they're going to be able to fight it better. But so what are people doing? Obviously, you're talking to folks around the country. Um, what are the unions doing to think about a, a national strategy for fighting this? What are teachers doing in terms of conversations that they're having? Yeah, it's really exciting to see some of the efforts that are coming together to fight back, to defend teaching the truth in our schools Uh, The NEA recently passed a resolution supporting 
our day of action that we've called for, for October 14th. October 14th is George Floyd's birthday. And we believe that if there could be any day where teachers feel emboldened to teach the truth about racism in our society, that should be a day. And we're calling on educators in every state to teach lessons about structural racism that day. And in the states where it's illegal to teach about structural racism, that will actually be civil disobedience. But I think it's time we bring back the power of civil disobedience that was so important to the civil rights movement, the lunch counter sit-ins, the freedom rides that helped ignite a struggle against Jim Crow segregation and institutional racism in this country. I think that the civil disobedience of educators teaching the truth could be very powerful. And, you know, we've have over 5,000 educators now who have signed our pledge at the Zen Education Project to teach the truth about structural racism, regardless of the law. And unfortunately, right-wing media sources took that pledge and broke the names down of the educators state by state and then published the list of names. And now those teachers are facing a severe backlash from, uh, you know, right-wing um, politicians, school board members, uh, and and families that want to attack anti-racist teaching. Um, but I'm proud to say that Black Lives Matter at school and the Zen Education Project organized an incredible day of action already on June 12th. And on that day, we called on educators, students, and parents to organize a day of action at a historic site in your community that tells us something about the Black freedom struggle, about the long history of structural racism in this country. And for example, in Seattle, we began at my high school, Garfield High School, at the Medgar Evers pool and talked about who Medgar Evers was as the president of the NAACP who was assassinated. And then we did a walking tour around the neighborhood where we were able to go to a Black Panther Party founded healthcare clinic uh, and talk about the benefits that we still are getting from that clinic and the legacy of the Panthers and other communities around the country did similar events to talk about how if these bills pass, we can't even talk about our own neighborhoods anymore. Uh, and we have another weekend of action that's being organized by Black Lives Matter at school, the Zen Education Project and the African-American Policy Forum for August 27th through the 29th. So right as schools are coming back online, we're asking educators and students and parents again to organize rallies at historic sites. And I think all of these actions are going to help change the narrative and get more and more people onto the side of hashtag teach truth. Yeah, I know. Um, some of these parents who are crusading against critical race theory are now using that as a reason to try to get elected to local school boards. And again, this is 
a playbook that we've seen before mm-hmm. in terms of evolution, all of these textbook wars, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. But, um, you know, is this something that, that worries you in terms of seeing parents becoming local elected officials? And how do we think about that? Well, I think that the right has taken education more seriously than the left has in many ways. They have had an organized, coordinated attack. They, for years, have been getting right-wing people elected to school boards in cities around the country. And unfortunately, I'm not seeing enough stories about the organizing efforts resisting the attacks on critical race theory and anti-racist teaching. I'm not seeing uh, all of the left-wing organizations and progressive groups uniting in a common struggle, right, uh, to to fight uh, for our right for anti-racist teaching. I mean, we could have a massive march on Washington, right, that, that included all of the mainstream organizations that want to defend the right to teach, have an honest education, right? And so I hope that that comes together because the right is certainly uniting around this this issue and and I hope that we see in le- more and more left-wing media this uh, garnering the attention it deserves and people beginning to understand that we are entering in a McCarthy-like era very rapidly and it's time to fight back. Yeah, why should people in other fields of work, other union members um, understand that this is their fight too. Yeah. I mean, look what happens in the McCarthy era. They came for teachers and were able to fire over 600 teachers across the country and people didn't stand up and defend those teachers and say that this anti-communist witch hunt was outrageous And then what happened, right? It spread to every sector of society. I mean, Hollywood actors weren't safe anymore. Uh, Any government employees, right? And so, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all. That's the labor movement slogan that needs to be understood and acted upon uh, in this moment, or we truly will be in a McCarthy like era. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how can people find out more about these days of action and things that you've mentioned here? Well, people should go to the Zen Education Project's website and you can click on the news button at the top and learn more about the upcoming actions. And you can go to the campaign button on the Zen Education Project and click on Teach the Black Freedom Struggle and learn so much more about what we mean about anti-racist education. You know, uh, the book that I co-edited, Teaching for Black Lives, and and the more recent one, Black Lives Matter at School, that I co-edited with Denisha Jones, um, are two really important resources for understanding both what we mean by anti-racist pedagogy and specifically what kind of lessons will help students understand the role of structural racism in our society and also with our Black Lives Matter at School movement book about how to organize and what efforts are being done in the communities and in schools to to organize and fight back. 
You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Jesse Hagopian of the Zinn Education Project. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. Where we talk about the pieces that we liked but did not write. My pick for ARG is For Women, Remote Work is a Blessing and a Curse. It's an explainer by Ronnie Mola in Recode. You may have heard some commentators dubbing this economic turmoil caused by the pandemic as a she-session. It's a reference to the fact that many of the hardest hit industries and occupations are dominated by women, and many of them have been pushed out of the job or pushed out of the workforce altogether over the past year and a half. Yet there are some dimensions of this so-called she-session that affect women in ways that are less visible. For workers who are able to work from home, that's a relatively small portion of the workforce, it might seem like they would have fared better during the pandemic because they could remain employed while staying safely at home on a flexible work schedule. But Mola explores some of the hidden burdens that fall on working women who have turned their homes into temporary cubicles. She writes, quote, Even before the pandemic, women were doing what sociologists describe as the second shift, where they complete an inordinate amount of household and caregiving chores after they've finished their paid labor. The pandemic has made things even worse, since much of the infrastructure that helps alleviate those tasks, schools, daycare, elder care, cleaning services, has been off limits. While women and men alike have worked from home, employed women are three times more likely than men to be their children's main caregiver during this period. Additionally, telecommuting moms significantly increased the amount of housework they did while working from home, and men didn't, unquote. Recent research shows that the intensification of this double shift has had a major impact on women's quality of life. A McKinsey survey found that, quote, some 79% of men said they had a positive work-from-home experience during the pandemic, compared with just 37% of women. In turn, one in four women and one in three mothers said they were thinking about downshifting their careers or stepping out of the workforce entirely, unquote. And indeed, a much larger number of women have left the workforce during the pandemic, according to federal statistics, compared to men. And that's likely due in part to their caregiving responsibilities. While telecommuting is often portrayed as the future of work, the pandemic has in many ways reinforced regressive patriarchal structures embedded in the modern workforce. The influx of women into the workforce since the 1950s has eroded the leave-it-to-beaver archetype of the happy housewife tending to her children while her husband serves as the breadwinner. But today, the division of household labor is in many ways still stuck in the 1950s. Women still shoulder most of the housework, and middle-class women tend to outsource their housework and childcare duties to poorer women. The lack of the ability to outsource that work to poor, mostly female workers is a large part of what has disrupted both domestic and paid labor in the home for many middle-class and lower-income households. According to the McKinsey survey, which covered June through August 2020, Quote, during the pandemic, mothers have been twice as likely as fathers in a dual career couple to do an extra five hours of domestic chores per day, unquote. In a traditional heteronormative household, the expectation that women are supposed to take on the bulk of housework often goes unquestioned, despite the fact that women are simultaneously dealing with the expectations of being full-time workers outside the home. And on top of that, they may be struggling with sexist discrimination at work that puts them at a disadvantage compared to their male colleagues. So they end up working even more because of that. Plus, caregiving in general is often dismissed as unserious not real work, something that women do naturally. And because many women end up doing it for free, that just creates a cyclical reinforcement of this sexist perception. 
What's more, Mola points out that during the pandemic, quote, U.S. attitudes about gender roles have become more conservative. While people are now more likely to say women should make money than they were pre-pandemic, they're also more likely to think that women should parent young children and stay at home. So again, wanting women to have it both ways, but compensating them poorly for both types of work. I'm not sure why attitudes on gender roles might have regressed during the pandemic, but perhaps it was simply the fact that many women found themselves increasingly alienated from work and frustrated by the added burden of childcare and housework. And when forced to choose between the daily grind and the domestic sphere, the latter seemed more suitable. And it was also probably a perfectly rational calculation for many women, given that they often earn lower wages than their male counterparts. The tragedy in all of this is that telework could have actually introduced many innovations to combat patriarchy in the workforce. Women should at least in theory benefit from a more flexible work schedule and less time spent commuting. And telework could probably afford them the ability to balance family caregiving responsibilities while working from home. Moreover, working from your laptop at home might indirectly shield you from sexual harassment or racial discrimination at work because you're not dealing with people in a physical workspace. However, the pandemic instead forced people to adapt to working from home without a clear plan in mind, and patriarchal divisions moved to fill in that vacuum. But things don't have to be this way. Mola outlines some of the key policy changes that could make women's experience with working from home more viable. Things that you might not expect telecommuters to need, like paid family leave and subsidized childcare but also policies that make it easier to work from home without being penalized career-wise, particularly ensuring equal opportunities for promotion, and also focusing less on the hours worked or on FaceTime, and instead focusing on what the worker actually produces and contributes. The pandemic might change office work forever by accelerating many professionals towards flexible schedules and telework arrangements that minimize the time we spend in the actual office. But it also has the potential to exacerbate gender inequality if we conflate flexibility with a lack of boundaries. Women with both paid jobs and caregiving duties need those boundaries more than ever, not only because they don't want their kid interrupting every Zoom call or having to reply to emails at 2 a.m., but because without clear boundaries, There's no limit to what society expects them to do. And finally, I wrote a story on this subject years ago, but nevertheless, this piece at Pointer made me go arg. By Angela Fu, it's titled, Not Just a Wave, But a Movement, Journalists Unionize at Record Numbers. Yes, yes, it's my own industry, leave me alone. This piece is mostly data journalism, an impressive attempt to quantify just how big the unionization wave, or as journalism researcher Nicole Cohen puts it in the piece, the movement is in the media. The piece starts out simply and punchily. Quote, in the past decade, workers at news publications have launched more than 200 union drives, and over 90% of them have been successful. End quote. That is a pretty impressive rate, even if not all of the shops are huge. Fu continues, quote, Last year saw at least 37 union drives where journalists asked formally for union representation. All of them were successful. Workers this year have already organized at least 29 union drives in the first six months of 2021, end quote. Doing well, right? The data analyzed comes from NLRB election reports as well, because many media outlets sought and got voluntary recognition of their unions as press releases from the big three media unions, the News Guild, the Writers Guild of America East, and the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or SAG-AFTRA. I really recommend taking a look at the piece online. We will, as always, link to it at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, for all of the data visualizations. 
The reasons journalists organize Foo Notes are both similar to and distinct from those of other workers. Quote, for example, journalists at digital outlets in the mid-2010s wanted to formalize rules governing their work. Digital news sites were growing rapidly at the time and were loosely organized and bootstrappy, Cohen said. Journalists looking to make their careers at these places believed that unionizing would make processes like hiring, promotions, and firing more transparent. It may be that some years ago, digital media was a temporary way station on the way to a newspaper job or a broadcast job, said Writers Guild Executive Director Lowell Peterson. I think it has become a place for journalists to make their careers in and of itself, and that has led them to ponder the question of, well, how do I make my career more viable? How do I get some say about my own work life? End quote. There's also the question of, of course, advertorials. Fu writes, quote, with the advent of business initiatives like sponsored content, digital outlets also saw a rise in content that blurred the lines between advertising and editorial work, Cohen said. Some journalists saw unionizing as a way to protect the editorial integrity of their work. And then, of course, there's the ongoing crisis of newspapers. Quote, newsroom employment at papers dropped by 51% between 2008 and 2019, Fu notes. And the industry is seeing increasing consolidation as private equity firms and hedge funds buy up papers. Many new unions' mission statements reference a desire to combat the local news crisis, and a number of journalists have decided to organize after a change in their paper's ownership, end quote. And of course, political changes related to our earlier conversation about Black Lives Matter. Many of the new unions cite racial justice, particularly in hiring and coverage, as key to their desire to organize. This article is a snapshot in time, noting that the movement is unlikely to slow down as, well, conditions aren't getting better. But the unions have an impressive win rate. While the success rate for NLRB elections as a whole is somewhere between 65 and 72 percent, the last time the News Guild lost an election at a newsroom was in 2012 at the Center for Investigative Reporting. The Writers Guild hasn't lost a single election to unionize a newsroom between 2012 and now. Part of that success, the union leaders quoted in the piece note, is because the journalists are running the show. Quote, we are very, very intent on this being a grassroots, worker-driven organizing drive, said SAG-AFTRA organizing director Maggie Russell Brown. It creates a much stronger union. It creates a stronger organization. And there's ownership of the process versus a sort of top-down or this-is-what-you're-going-to-get approach. So that is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on media unions, teacher struggles, just cause protections, and retail work. And of course, working and very importantly, refusing to work sometimes in the age of COVID-19. Thanks as always go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help. And special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, especially if you've been doing that for years, uh, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or over on Patreon, where we have, of course, new and fancy rewards at patreon.com slash belabored. We, of course, understand we've been there, that it's been a rough year. But if you do have some spare cash to kick our way, you help us continue to do labor reporting. And we do have some, you know, lovely gifts to give you if you sign up over at Patreon.
You can, of course, find more at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash belabored and descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of working under COVID or hopefully sort of maybe kind of getting free of COVID, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a journalist or a teacher, a fast food worker or carer or farm worker, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thank you for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.